access to YouTube. Right now. Okay, we did it. We're uh, we're live. Yeah. I think. I think. I can't. I can't. I need. Uh, as always, the the joke I make is I require like some external uh, confirmation of our existence. Oh, Someone to collapse the wave front and uh, and yeah. the wave function and tell us that we actually exist. But uh, right. But I I'm sure it's working. Um. So, but I hope we've been having a couple of audio issues for the last couple of episodes and I think I've sorted them out. So hopefully when you introduce yourself, uh, your audio is going to work well and your people are going to be hear you, hear you just great. So let me, uh, let me give it a try. So why don't you introduce, introduce yourself? Who are you? What do you do? Um, I am uh, Niku Madhusudan. I am a professor of astrophysics and exoplanetary science at uh, the Institute of Astronomy at Cambridge. Uh, so my main area of research uh, is exoplanet atmospheres, uh, but you know I work in a few different areas within exoplanetary science, uh, connecting with atmospheres, interiors, plant formation, and so on. So you obviously came to all of our attention in the last month or so with quite an interesting paper that you published with your various uh, co-authors about this entirely new category of, of Hycean world. Um, so can you talk a little bit about, about, the, about the research and what you're proposing? Yeah, so the, uh, the idea of uh, this particular paper actually originated about a year ago, uh, more than a year ago. Last year, we published a paper on the uh, planet K218b, uh, which, is, which was originally classified as a mini Neptune uh, sitting in the habitable zone of its host star. So this is slightly over two and a half times Earth radius, the radius of this planet. And at the time, we demonstrated how, we can go into that in more detail, but mm -hmm. we demonstrated how uh, even for a planet that big, uh, which originally one would have uh, thought cannot uh, host any habitable conditions at all, we demonstrated that there is a subset of solutions which allow for uh, habitable conditions, liquid water at the right temperatures and pressures uh, on a surface uh, underneath the hydrogen-rich atmosphere. So that sort of got us uh, into thinking, well, if K218b uh, can allow such conditions, what other planets are out there that could allow for similar conditions? And more than planets, just what macroscopic planetary properties allow us to um, allow the possibility of liquid water on the surface of the planet underneath the hydrogen-rich atmosphere uh, and the surface being habitable uh, in habitable conditions. So, so that's when we went ahead and did this elaborate exploration of the planetary uh, bulk parameter space and came up with this idea of the Haitian world. Right. So, I mean, you know, when we think of... of of, of, a, of a, I guess, of a habitable exoplanet, we're imagining something like Earth, we're imagining some kind of world that is within the habitable zone of its parent star. And obviously, for a red dwarf star, it's very, it's very small zone for a sun like star, maybe it's a much wider zone, you've got a rocky planet, it's got a thick at or an atmosphere that is providing water on top of it. And so I think we can all conceptualize this idea of a of a rocky world and you know, a terrestrial planet. So what, 
would a thick like what what creates or what is a thick hydrogen atmosphere? How does that how does that differ? I mean, I guess we have a thick nitrogen atmosphere. Yeah, yeah. so we <laughs> yeah, we have a nitrogen atmosphere, uh, but the the um, hydrogen rich atmospheres are actually not that uncommon. All the giant planets in the solar system have hydrogen rich atmospheres because they're just right? made of so, hydrogen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the atmosphere is predominantly hydrogen and helium. Uh, you know, Neptune has it, Uranus has it. So it uh, turns out, you know, hydrogen rich atmospheres are very common and would be the default kind of atmosphere you expect unless there is something else uh, that happens after the planet formed. And the reason for that is when the planet is forming in a protoplanetary disk around the star, it primarily creates hydrogen, hydrogen and helium. That's what the nebula is made of for the most part. Right. And along with that hydrogen and helium, it creates some other, uh, you know, solids in the form of ices and so on, uh, which contribute to, you know, the oxygen, carbon, and so on in the atmosphere. But for the most part, hydrogen is all it's got, hydrogen and uh, helium in nebular proportions. Uh, but then uh, something else happens for smaller planets is that, you know, they can lose the hydrogen uh, over time, and then the secondary outgassed uh, molecules dominate over the atmosphere and you're, you're, you're left with secondary atmospheres, carbon dioxide rich atmospheres or nitrogen rich atmospheres and oxygen comes into play at some other point, so on and so forth. So all the rocky planet atmospheres that you, you see and that we are so accustomed to are actually secondary atmospheres. Hmm. If that doesn't happen, if you don't lose that original uh, atmosphere in the first place, in other words, if you had, like there are various ways to get there. For example, if you started out with a much thicker atmosphere and you haven't lost all of it uh, yet, right? So if, you, if it's a bigger planet and it hasn't lost all of its hydrogen, then you retain it. That's one way. Or you outguess uh, right. hydrogen as well and make up an atmosphere. So there are any number of ways you can make up an hydrogen-rich atmosphere and you end up with such planets which in which... Hydrogen, uh, by definition, has a low mean molecular weight, which means the atmosphere is puffier. So for the same mass content, right. you'll have a puffier uh, atmosphere if you have a hydrogen-rich composition. And, uh, I mean, we're, we're all fairly familiar with this idea that, say, Mars lost all of its hydrogen because it doesn't have enough gravity and the the solar wind is is sort of blowing away the, the hydrogen atoms out into space. And a similar process is kind of happening on Earth, but we've got a better protection from the sun to be able to stop that. Mm -hmm. Something similar happened with, with Venus. So so you've got these forces. You've got the, the sun is trying to get rid of your, of your hydrogen. But I guess if you have enough gravity, you're able to fight that process or if you're yeah you can hang on to it yeah you can hang on to that hydrogen and so and so like if we were say double if earth was double the mass that it what that it is today would it have a much richer amount of hydrogen in its atmosphere than than we experience today and would that mean what would be the consequence of that would we have more oceans or just more hydrogen in the atmosphere I mean, one uh, one has to do uh, such a calculation, and I'm sure some people have done those calculations. You could still lose uh, much of your hydrogen over the you know many billion years of the evolutionary history of the Earth if you're just two times over. Uh, but let's say you started you know much bigger with a much thicker atmosphere and you chipped away at it, and then 
you could still retain some of that atmosphere if you are slightly bigger than just two earth masses that said that said there is an interesting um observation being made in the field right now is that we are seeing smaller planets like two earth mass planets with potentially hydrogen rich envelopes and there are ideas uh, being floated around on how how those could be retained as well so i wouldn't entirely discard the idea of a hydrogen rich atmosphere around a two earth mass object right. but whether in the specific conditions of earth around a sun like star with earth's you know uh, history you could still have that is a different question well, well you mentioned that there's maybe some ideas on on how they could retain this so i mean can I hear your speculations on on how one of these planets might be able to hold on to its atmosphere? Uh, I mean, people have uh, been arguing for outgassing of hydrogen from the interior uh, of the planet, uh, or like you, you know, you could have a water rich. You could start with a water rich uh, planet, but then you dissociate a lot of that water, and then you form hydrogen that way. Hmm. Or you know, you started as a bigger planet uh, with more of a hydrogen envelope, but then, as I said earlier, you could remove part of the hydrogen envelope, but what is left today is a small core, a two Earth mass core with some hydrogen around it. Right, right. <clears throat> and so, you know, I mean, if you said like there are planets that are made of, that have a thick hydrogen atmosphere, as you said, those are the gas giants. We've got Jupiter, we've got one right over there. Um, so why does this get interesting in terms of habitability? Yeah, so, um, so the problem with the hydrogen-rich atmosphere for habitability is that if you have an atmosphere that is too thick, then what happens is that your pressure and temperature, obviously they increase as you go deeper into the atmosphere. And if you have the atmosphere to be too thick, any, if there is a surface, it'll be extremely hot. So too hot to be habitable. You can have tens of thousands of bars of pressure, you know, thousand Kelvin or higher uh, temperatures, many thousands of Kelvins of temperatures and so on. So you couldn't uh, possibly be habitable. That's the situation with Uranus and Neptune in our own solar system, right? right? So they're, they're very cold on the surface. You know, the atmosphere is extremely cold, but below freezing obviously uh, but then if you go deep enough the pressures and the temperatures are extremely high so before you hit any sort of liquid uh, water surface you know it's, it's already too hot and high pressure for that so you end up into supercritical phases uh, of water and never actually uh, end up with liquid, liquid water surface so that is why people in the past had been arguing for even like these mini Neptunes, and I'll get to like the broader picture of mini Neptunes in a second. But even for planets slightly smaller than Uranus and Neptune, if the radius is too big, people had argued that you would have a hydrogen rich envelope that is too thick to sustain life in the, uh, in the interior. And that is the key, right? is that it is not in this particular study, the statement is not that every planet that is smaller than Neptune and cool enough can host life. Mm -hmm. you, you cannot make that uh, statement. And the reason for that, uh, I'll get into the broader class now, is that as, as you may well know, we the exoplanet demographics today are basically suggesting that planets between Earth and Neptune size, the sub-Neptune uh, type planets, 
basically overwhelm the population. Like yes. the majority of the population is just those. Yeah. Right? Earth is obviously one Earth radius uh, in, in, in radius, and Neptune is four Earth radii. In that range is where the majority of planets we have found uh, lie. So big Neptunes. Yeah. And what that means by a smaller Neptune is that you have these hydrogen-rich envelopes and then an icy sort of mantle, an icy interior, and then a rocky core somewhere inside. Right. So you transition from that to like these rocky worlds or super Earths, which are predominantly rock, like, like Earth and terrestrial planets, and with some secondary atmospheres possibly, or even a hydrogen-rich atmosphere. Where that transition happens, you know, is still not like 100% clear, but there have been theoretical studies and empirical studies which showed that, which argued for it to be nominally around 1.6 Earth radius. Okay. So, so if we... I guess if we moved Neptune into the inner solar system and we got closer and closer to the sun and it yeah. was able to warm up. And so, as you said, right now, you've got the outer, the outer atmosphere, the upper cloud tops. It's very, very cold as it goes down. It's, the pressure and temperature heats up and suddenly you, you get beyond liquid water into these weird exotic high pressure ices and, and things like that. But, but we call Neptune and Uranus ice giants like they have the stuff of ice in them they have water and other constituents yeah. inside of them and so if you took neptune and brought it into the inner solar system would there be this point where it would be um a more habitable world no so it just so so it's the, not the kind of planet you're thinking of the reason for that is where what i was uh, hinting at is that this transition point around 1.6 uh, Earth radii that people are, it could be like somewhere around that between super Earths and uh, mini Neptunes. About that radius, what you're arguing, roughly around about that radius, what you're arguing is that you have to have like a hydrogen. I mean, the mini Neptunes are characterized by having hydrogen rich envelopes. But it's not that you can have any amount of hydrogen rich envelope and still be habitable. Right, right. So Neptune has four Earth radii, right? Which means it needs anywhere between, depends on the models, but anywhere between around 10% to 20% of its envelope mass in hydrogen. So if you stack that much hydrogen uh, on any sort of interior, your pressure and temperature at the bottom of that hydrogen layer would be way too high right. for any sort of habitability to happen, which means that radius has to come down significantly before you can allow for just the right amount of hydrogen, which will allow just the right amount of pressure and temperature at the base of it. Okay, so then and that sorry. Oh and, no, sorry. That I mean, I, that makes sense. So maybe if we took Neptune and broke it up into a bunch of smaller planets, then maybe yeah. that might that might do the trick. So then let's take a look again and at this sort of at your perfect Hycean world world, and you know. A lot of us, a lot of the science journalists, we were very confused when we heard this word Hycean world. We're like, whoa, what is that? Is that Greek? What does that mean? But it's like hydrogen ocean, Hycean. Yeah, I see what you did there. Um, so what is like your perfect Hycean world? So the if I may go back one step uh, before I, oh, uh, sure. yep. I answer that particular question, remember how I just said, you need to be at the right uh, limit of radius 
in this particular work, we have established what that radius ought to be. So, so the maximum radius you can be for a Hessian planet is around 2.6 Earth radii for a 10 Earth mass planet. That upper limit is actually a curve with smaller mass that maximum limit decreases. For a five Earth mass, it'll be around 2.2 or so. So, so that is an upper limit below which you need to be for the surface conditions to still be habitable. Okay, so, so that that is something we need to keep in mind. We cannot go indefinitely in radius and still right. you know, have a hydrogen-rich atmosphere and be habitable. So having said that, uh, you, to your question of what is a perfect Haitian uh, world, um, as long as it's got the mass uh, and radius below that limit I just uh, spoke about, mm -hmm. and temperatures, I would like to keep it balmy. Uh, <laughs> uh, let's call it around 300 Kelvin equilibrium temperature. Um, that should be a pretty decent uh, planet with a decent uh, chance of habitability, I would say. And and what would it look like as you, you know, as you fly down in your spaceship and as you descend down through the layers of the cloud tops, what, what would you be experiencing? What would it look like? So, um, uh, there are any number of scenarios so this you know when you go into uh, the theories that we uh, work on there are any number of scenarios that will fit uh, the description of the macroscopic properties the masses ready the mass ready and uh, temperatures and so on but one scenario it could be could be that you would find yourself in a very hazy world lots of hydrocarbons um, you know lots of haze basically uh, and then uh, an ocean, uh, in infinite uh, ocean around, and uh, the most likely for most of these planets, the temperatures would not be like Earth-like ocean temperatures. They they would be significantly hotter, hmm. uh, but hotter for us, but not necessarily for the extremophiles we have on Earth. You know, we know on Earth life survives up to you know around 400 Kelvin temperatures um, in, um, at like uh, high pressures even. Um, so those conditions are technically habitable, right? right? So that is what we are most likely uh, to encounter on these worlds is very hot oceans, steamy, uh, the atmosphere very hazy, um, and but there is and you know there would be endless oceans by construction so the so the the higher atmospheric pressure would be acting a bit like a pressure cooker in the way that you can you can boil water at a much higher temperature in a pressure cooker because you've got that higher pressure so you might have uh, you mentioned say um you know those those worms that live beside the hot smoker vents can can appreciate 130 Celsius. Um, there's bacteria that can handle those kinds of just extreme temperatures. As long as there's liquid water, then they can they can do their job. And and so you would have this water that would, I guess, almost be boiling. Like if you were, if you tried to swim in it, it would not be pleasant. It would not be pleasant. No. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, 
Yeah, so as far as the pressure is concerned, in, in this work, what we have done is we wanted to construct a habitable zone, you see. So, so to get to the inner edge of the habitable zone, you have to assume the most, uh, you know, the extreme conditions uh, of pressures and temperatures and all that that would still allow for habitability. But there is no reason uh, why that has to be the norm. You see what I mean? So, you know, you could have planets out there at normal pressures um, and lower temperatures. You know, so they, they all don't have to be at 400 uh, Kelvin temperatures. You know, you could have planets out there uh, right. which would be 350 or 300 Kelvin and room temp, you know, room pressure, like one atmosphere pressure as well. On the other hand, you could also have the other extreme, which is have 1,000 bar pressure atmospheres and you know and extreme temperatures as well so there's a wide range here well and i think that's the i mean i think that was the biggest takeaway that i got in reading your reading the paper was that that with a terrestrial planet like earth you've got this very thin goldilocks zone where the temperatures are not too high not too cold so that liquid water can exist on the surface of the of the world but but these Haitian is the way you're saying it Haitian world. Yeah. yeah okay. I yeah. like it. Yeah. Haitian worlds. So these Haitian worlds have much wider habitable zones. So, so how wide? Yeah. Uh, very, very wide in the sense that the, uh, there are two reasons uh, for why they're extremely wide. I'll tell you how wide in a second, but the motivation is uh, just as important is that the inner boundary for an Earth-like planet has always been, I mean, obviously the Earth's terrestrial uh, habitable zone was constructed with the Earth in mind, right? So if we want an, literally an Earth-like planet around various kinds of stars, yeah. we keep the Earth's surface conditions, the atmospheric conditions and all that and make that habitable zone. So right. that's well motivated by what we know for. And we may find there's only one in the entire observable universe. I would I would hope there would be more, but they're just very hard to observe. Yeah, <laughs> you know, if you want, we'll get to biosignatures uh, later on. But you know, they're extremely hard to detect a biosignature uh, in the atmosphere. Uh, but when you get to these sorts of planets, the advantage they have is that there are any number of scenarios which allow you to be somewhat closer uh, to their stars, somewhat hotter, uh, and still be have still have habitable uh, surface conditions. Uh, you know, one reason being you can't lose if you have that much water in the planet. You cannot lose no matter how high you make the temperature. You cannot lose all of it. Right. right? You have basically an infinite uh, source at the bottom. So you could afford to go to much higher temperatures and still be habitable. Uh, and the atmosphere could be extremely misty, but that's okay. Uh, you know, as long as you have the right conditions. So uh, what that allows you is that it takes the inner habitable zone uh, somewhat closer uh, to their host stars than uh, what you would have on Earth. But that is not what expands. Uh, I mean, it is still like, you know, an expansion of the habitable zone inward in that you don't now stay at like 300, close to 300 Kelvin, but you could go all the way up to 400 Kelvin temperatures, right. equilibrium temperatures, right? So that will get you a little bit of orbital distance inward. But what is more interesting is that the outer habitable zone is basically indefinite for these sorts of planets. Really? So that you could be extremely far from the star and even free floating 
and still we have habitable conditions on the surface. Now, when you say free floating, like you're talking about a rogue planet that has no star, that is just exactly that is just wandering randomly across the Milky Way. Exactly. Wow. And so, 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 so I mean, we talk, we're kind of, you know, we've talked a bit about just the, the hotter version. So, so talk to me about that colder version. What is that looking like? Yeah. So the colder version is less talked about usually uh, because, uh, you know, they're less uh, amenable to detection and observations because they're so far away from their stars. But in terms of the principle of habitability, they're just as important and increase the volume of habitable of the region of habitability much more than the hotter ones. Um, the reason for that is that uh, on the Earth, you know, the outer edge of the habitable zone is around 1.7 uh, AU um, nominally, but then there are model considerations which can move it slightly closer or uh, farther. But for these planets, and that's for the Earth, it's basically because you condense out all the global warming causing uh, gases from the atmosphere. You can condense out CO2 and obviously water and so on. So it becomes extremely cold very quickly. But for these types of planets, the hydrogen itself is provides the warming beyond that. So if you have a thick enough hydrogen atmosphere, uh, even up to like, you know, 1,000 bar atmospheres are feasible. We have shown in this work, those are what we call as the um, cold Haitian worlds, is that you could have thick hydrogen atmospheres which can allow for liquid water on the surface uh, without any source, uh, even without without the star. That's incredible. Right? So just the, yeah, just the internal energy, yeah. the internal heat from the planet itself is enough to sustain liquid water on the surface. And how long would it last? Like, like billions of years? Yeah, yeah it could last billions of years. Uh, yeah, easily. And these sorts of planets actually without the hydrogen rich atmospheres, but for rocky uh, planets have been studied before. This is not a new idea in and of itself. Uh, people, you know, in the last you know, 10 to 20 years, even like, uh, have studied small planets, small, uh, very far, like terrestrial rocky type planets, very far from their stars, or even like rogue planets, uh, which can possibly sustain liquid water on their surfaces. Right, but, right. But no one had studied uh, hydrogen um, rich atmosphere, like these, these Haitian type of planets with ocean worlds with hydrogen rich atmospheres uh, being far away from their stars of free floating. Uh, but we show in this work that you know, that is indeed a possibility. Uh, and you can have lots of them out there. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> um, so, so then let's talk about this definition of habitability, because you, 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 you know, we know, of course, you know, the, the classic trope is wherever we find liquid water on Earth, we find life, whether we're at under the the seas in Antarctica, whether we're next to a nuclear reactor core, whether we're in weird, highly alkaline, highly acidic vents, anything, liquid water yeah. equals life. Um, yeah. But but that kind of requires a few basic building blocks, things like carbon, phosphorus, etc. What what does a, does a life form have access to on one of these Haitian worlds? Yeah, so um, 
the for the definition of habitability uh, we haven't actually pushed it like for the thermodynamic conditions the temperature pressure and all that those we haven't pushed beyond what we see on earth in fact the limits we have imposed are based on the limits that we know from extremophiles on earth like the maximum temperatures and pressures so there is still uh, some wiggle room there where you could push even further um, in temperatures but let's but we don't need to do that uh, right now uh, but what is more important is the later part uh, of your question which is like what nutrients are available uh, for for the life forms now that's a, an important question because for these sorts of planets the they don't have access to a land surface for the most part of course if the oceans are shallow uh in the, for the definitions of these planets we are giving a wide range of like how thick an ocean can be so it is possible that the oceans will be shallow and then you can still have access to the nutrients in some cases yeah like from the rocky surface underneath and then you can have convection and mixing uh, of the nutrients to the surface but many of them may not have access to that right because the ocean could be so deep that at the bottom of it you would have basically high pressure ices or supercritical water uh so then you if yeah then they would basically cut off access from the nutrient pool underneath mm-hmm. and that is a problem uh for the conventional way of thinking about how nutrients are accessed by life on earth the but the uh nutrients that you mentioned the carbon nitrogen uh, phosphorus and so on those are not the ones that i'm worried about because those in a hydrogen rich atmosphere almost come for free with the nebular gas right when you accrete the nebular gas during formation in addition to hydrogen you also accrete uh molecules that contain carbon nitrogen all these volatile species carbon nitrogen phosphorus sulfur and so on so those could still uh, be accessible what is a problem is potentially the metals uh which are usually sequestered uh, deep in the core uh and if you don't have access to the weathering of those uh, that core to give you give back the nutrients it could be a problem yeah there are other there are other ideas floating around which is you know you could get them from meteorites for example externally delivered to the ocean and then uh, that could uh, uh replenish some of that but then we could also think about you know hypothesis on if life can evolve without those specific metals yeah so i mean this whole topic of of how habitable really is a is an ocean world and and that's a you know it's a whole other field of research that people are are yeah. investigating and you know i think with with many of these fields you know your first brush you're like well it's a it's a 100 kilometer thick ocean forget about it there's no chance and then someone at some point goes well wait a minute what about this and then everyone goes oh yeah okay yeah fine it's it's better now right they solve it um so i i think uh that's uh like i think sort of you know first blush you sort of think oh no it's hopeless and then later on people come up with really clever ideas like like the earth is accumulating uh 100 tons of space debris every year just from it falling yeah. through the atmosphere and yeah. it would be raining down and you know people have proposed like we could we could seed the oceans with iron to try to help minimize the impact of of climate change well maybe 
with a planet that is much larger, maybe it's, it's got a, a multiplication of that of this stuff just raining down and falling in the ocean. And maybe the life forms have, have done a really good job of holding on to those precious elements as they yeah. for longer for longer periods. So I want to sort of put this now, like now we've sort of got all the building blocks, and I want to sort of put this idea into a larger context. Most planets are hydrogen worlds are like in the in the universe, like we haven't found them all. But we based on the fact that most of the universe is hydrogen, it feels like a safe assumption. Most of the planets that we're finding are these larger planets, these these somewhere between Earth and and Neptune, not now, maybe that's just we haven't expand, you know, we need better telescopes, better methods, etc more a wider habitable habitable zone is better. Like it feels like you are delivering sort of a gigantic chunk of habitability to the universe with the research that you're doing. Is that what it feels like? That, that, yeah, that, that that's what we realized <laughs> when when we found this is that yeah, it's it's got to be a sea change in our chances of finding life. But what I'm most excited about in, in all of this is that it's, you know, I do a lot of theory. I, I do observational work as well. Um, but what this is mostly theoretical like with strong observational underpinnings. But what excites me most about this is that it's all observable. Mm -hmm. Yes. You know, you can test it. Right, so don't buy the uh, theory. Wait three, four years. Let James Webb launch, and we even have got you know approved observations on James Webb to look at some of these objects. So JWST will look at them. Yeah, and you know we have even found the you know about eleven best targets that we have identified in this in this uh, work. You can actually observe them, observe their atmospheres determine if they have oceans, determine if they have any biosignatures on them. And if you found nothing, let's say in, in a dozen planets, that's great, right? We have just ruled out yeah. that those are not the conditions for life. But if we did that. So, so I think you, I think you're, I think that's really important because not like we've talked so much about ice worlds. We've yeah. talked about Europa and Enceladus and maybe Pluto. And what about Eris? And what about, and you've got these worlds, Ganymede, you've got this, this thick ice covering with a liquid water ocean underneath and maybe some, and a, and a metallic solid core, rocky core. And I've heard estimates that there could be a thousand times as many of those worlds as we have worlds like, like the earth. The problem is they are impossible to study. Maybe yeah. here in the solar system, we can send a probe to Europa or Enceladus and be able to somehow drill under the ice. But if we discover icy worlds in another star system, we have no way to be able to analyze to see if there are biosignatures. But but I think like the bonus, the, the special bonus that you're adding on the top of this is that is that you can analyze the atmosphere of these worlds and search for biosignatures in exactly the same way you'd be analyzing yeah. a, a terrestrial planet. And yeah. they're easier to look at because they're bigger, potentially they're, they're an easier target to analyze. They could very well be the first best place 
like almost like we should stop looking at waiting to find those terrestrial planets and start analyzing the atmospheres of these worlds and testing out our techniques. Yeah, I mean, the the reality is that there are already approved observations for other reasons. So for the same target, some of the same targets, James Webb is already slated to observe those planets because we generally want to understand the atmospheres of sub-Neptune planets because they're so important and unique. Uh, so we almost get, if there are biosignatures, if at all, um, or candidate biosignatures, you almost get those for free. Yeah. So in the first cycle of James Webb observations, some of them will be observed. Um, so, so that is the um, important part in all of this. And to me, I mean, fundamentally, science is all about you know, posing, you know, testable hypotheses and going and making observations to prove those hypotheses, then they become established theoretical, uh, you know, foundations of something uh, bigger in, you know, in the future. Uh, whether if we detect, let's say we detect one of these biomarkers, potential biomarkers, whether they're actually indicative of life or not is also something we want to establish. You see what I mean? There could be false positives, this and that. So, so, all that aside, the important thing is two things, as you uh, pointed out. One is that these sorts of planets, you know, are just have delivered an enormous uh, catchment area, so to speak, like an enormous opportunity to search for life that both expands and accelerates the search of life. Mm-hmm. Search for life. Yeah. And the second important bit is that it's actually doable in the next. It's few actually years. testable. Yeah. And so back to that idea of, I mean, you know, I hadn't even triggered on that idea of the rogue planets like we're like it's really starting to dawn on us now just how many of those rogue planets could be out there at least as many as just regular planets maybe um maybe more i've heard some estimates as high as like 10 times as many planets are actually rogue planets out there and if they were ice worlds there's no way to examine them for biosignatures but now maybe there is a way so yeah but Sorry, go on. Well, I just go ahead first, and then I'll, I'll shift my to my. Next. I was saying, like, it's slightly it it is harder to uh, detect the atmospheres of the rogue worlds. Of uh, <laughs> having a star around it, uh, around which the planet orbits turns out is very useful for atmospheric spectroscopy of the planet itself. Um, so that that is the caveat. Uh, but you're right; is that in principle there could be a lot of. Um, lot of uh, rogue worlds as well but still i mean like a, a gigantic infrared observatory that's observing a, a rogue world that maybe is only a light year away from us and detecting a a Haitian world feels possible trying to analyze the geysers coming out of a moon around a rogue jupiter feels tricky like it just feels next level difficult. And so I, yeah. think, I think this, these kinds of worlds provides just this, this first really useful step, some way to possibly analyze these things. But, but I think, as you say, just the, the standard analysis of these worlds, these kinds of observations would, would fall out as just part of the regular, pro- like astronomers would absolutely be examining the spectra, seeing what they're seeing and, and the, the results would, would come out of it. So we we painted this really rosy picture and and i want to bring the hammer down which is like you've got a planet 
that has a thick hydrogen atmosphere. It is filled with hydrocarbons. Life as we understand it here on Earth generates oxygen, you know, the higher life forms enjoy to, to breathe that oxygen. You add oxygen to one of your Haitian worlds and we've got a problem. You got a big problem there. Yeah. <laughs> it turns out life uh, and most life on Earth uh, or like that you know, the life that we are talking about that you just mentioned uh, breathes oxygen, but there are there is life on Earth which also survives in very high hydrogen um, concentrations. Uh, there are there have been studies which showed that you know you know you could have eighty percent hydrogen and life survives just fine, and even laboratory experiments have showed that even in hundred percent oxygen life you know some microbes survive just fine. Uh, so oxygen. Yes, most life might need it, but not like all life. Right, right. But but I think like obviously, you know, we have a completely separate ecosystem here on Earth down to the bottom of the oceans. You have the 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 life that is huddled around these black smokers yeah. and all surface life could disappear tomorrow and there would still be life on Earth because they are they don't require the sun. You know, you could destroy yeah. the sun and they would be they would be fine with that. Yeah. So I can imagine some version of of that. But I think in our minds, when we imagine an ocean world, we imagine these giant krakens and and space whales and creatures flying around in the thick hydrogen atmosphere, chasing yeah. little hydrogen birds. Yeah. All that kind of goes out the window, doesn't it? You've just got just yeah. a lot of bacteria fighting for the, the rare piece of iron that happens to fall from space. Yeah, I mean, we have to be very notions of life uh, in, in, in these sorts of studies, uh, because it's very easy to go off the tangent and say, oh, we'll find all kinds of oceanic life. And that I don't think is the case. Uh, we have to be very cautious and conservative and say we'd be lucky if we found microbes uh, ex like extremophile uh, microbes on these planets. Uh, and we'll be lucky if they gave the signatures that we think uh, such microbes give out. And then we'll be lucky if we actually detected them. So there are many like chains of argument before we can establish. And even if we find a molecule, uh, we have to be really sure that 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 is a biosignature. So I don't think we should, you know, get ahead of ourselves and claim of complex life forms. But but any life detected is a major breakthrough, isn't it? You know, it's it's like a sea yeah, change. Maybe the, the first time, sure, fine. You know, we discover life on another world for the first time, fine. It's like the most important scientific discovery in the history of humanity, fine. But but what else you got, right? Like now, I want, yeah, it, now I want yeah, yeah. space whales. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so the the thing is that is why I you know I have um, had arguments that oh, maybe we should focus exclusively on these sorts of planets. I to that my response is in the short term yes um, because that's the most accessible and that's our first uh, you know first bet. But we want to make sure we keep the search on for terrestrial like the regular have you know the terrestrial habitable zone uh, concept and terrestrial planets, terrestrial size exoplanets with the right conditions that we know of uh, as on Earth and continue looking for those as well. Because 
ultimately that is our eventual goal yeah. you know to find an earth twin that is the holy grail of of exoplanet science so we don't want to stop here obviously but this is a big stepping stone in that direction because if you just bank on trying to find that it's like a more than 10 year uh, venture yeah the i mean the like we're at the point now where uh, where astronomers are and, and and exobiologists are trying to figure out what are the biosignatures that we should be looking for in the atmospheres of other worlds what is the what are the gases that if you detect them in your spectroscopy you've got a very clear indication of of that there's life there and i mean we've seen with the big argument over phosphine on venus like venus is just it's right over there and people can't agree that that these signals were detected mars is just over there and again people can't be sure if the sources of methane indicate life or indicate volcanic activity yeah does do the simplified ingredients of a hyshen world allow you to find weirder outliers that could be a more strong indication of a biosignature yeah so the, there are many aspects there uh, you know they have just a much wider range of uh possibilities uh you know both in terms of venus and mars the temperatures you know are not like earth like temperatures you see what i mean so so the we are trying to you know in case of phosphine there are arguments on it does phosphine really uh you know indicate uh, the existence of life or there are there can be false positives and all that for hyshen worlds it's a different set of problems in the sense that the regular biomarkers let's say methane uh you wouldn't expect that to be a robust biosignature on a hyshen world so like in our paper what we showed that what what is our best bet is to focus on what are known as these secondary biomarkers that are not produced in massive quantities because those can have false positives like methane uh but these secondary biomarkers like methyl chloride or dimethyl sulfide these things which we know uh, are produced by organisms on earth but in very small quantities we are talking about a part per million but those are possible on these planets because the conditions are the temperature and pressure conditions are right for such organisms yeah. and those can be easily detectable as well because their atmospheres are so puffy uh that with jwst they are easily detectable Yeah. At least for the nearest systems. So and and do you think that that then these observations under maybe more tighter constraints will help to inform as you extend out to to other kinds of worlds? Yeah, so there were even for earth-like planets there were previous studies uh, arguing that maybe we should focus more on the secondary biomarkers than the primary ones like oxygen and methane. Yeah. Uh, even for earth-like planets. So what we are saying here is that those exact biomarkers are even easier to detect on hyshen worlds so and they provide lots of opportunities which makes them very favorable. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like a I mean if they're out there it sounds like a real gift. Um is there any way to get a hybrid like is there any way to blur the line between a hyshen world and a terrestrial world? Yeah. so far for small planets uh, so so far what i've only talked about the upper limit uh, of radius but there is also a lower limit where 
we're saying we are prescribing a minimum amount of water, you know, 10% by mass. Turns out even that amount of water is a lot compared to what we have on Earth, right? On Earth, it's less than 0.1%. So, so that is where you start to blur the lines, is that if you just had a mass and radius measurement, that size planet can also be explained by, um, you know, an Earth-like planet with, or like with less amount of iron, like a silicate-rich planet, and a little bit um, less hydrogen. Now, yeah, there are a combination of species, um, you know, compositions uh, can explain that. So that's where you blur the lines. And then you need an atmospheric observation to establish whether it's actually, um, you know, has the uh, requirements that we prescribe. So how many of these do you think are out there? Um, it's hard to say uh, because the statistics are uh, not clear yet. Uh, but there could be a lot because we have already identified close to a dozen around very nearby stars. And by nearby, we are talking about you know tens of light years to around you know hundred plus uh, light years. Uh, so my guess is that there could be a lot of them out there. Well, um, but, but the universe is a big place, so there's a lot of everything. No, even in the solar neighborhood, there could be a lot of them. Um, so that even, is the problem. Even the solar neighborhood is a big place. So there's a lot yeah, of everything. Exactly. Like, yeah. because I mean, I think at this point, astronomers are starting to think that there could be one Earth-sized world per star. Like, but sized, not right, not right. Of course, not in the habitable zone, but a size. But you've you've taken this idea of a habitable zone, you just thrown it out the window, and you said it's all good. So, so like. Does every star system have a hydrogen world? Do half of star yeah. systems, one-tenth, one-one-thousandth? I wouldn't hazard a guess at this point. We, we just established this. This is, uh, this is, a, this is a safe place. You can hazard a guess and, and no, <laughs> no, will, nobody will listen no, to this. Don't worry about that. <laughs> no, it's not about that. It's that someone has to do the demographic calculations, and I would think there would be a lot of them. Uh, but the problem here is that it's not just about mass and radius. If you talk, if you said radius and mass limits within the Haitian limits, then I would say tons, you know, tons, at least one per star or something like that. There we go. But, that is, but no, but that is not enough for a Haitian world. You also need the right temperature around the right star. Right. And that changes with stars. So all this combination of metrics means that you actually have to do a calculation to establish the demographics. So, but it is more, it's more than Earth-like habitable planets, that much I will say. It was significantly right. more than right. Earth-like habitable yeah. planets. And so that goes back to this idea that that this is a great place to start. Let's find these worlds. Let's analyze their atmospheres. They're easier to look at. There's probably more of them out there for us to find. So we'll probably find ones that are that are better positioned for, for say, James Webb or Ariel or Habex, these these to be able to analyze them and get some really good information, use that as a way of learning to look at worlds that we have the, because we can only, there's only going to be so many places we can point James Webb at and get some work done. So I, I think it's sort of a really interesting, the, the ramifications of this sound really fascinating, kind of as interesting to me as the discovery of geysers on on Enceladus and, and Europa, that suddenly this whole new class of worlds has come into focus. And, but then kind of makes the question of like, where is everybody even more complicated? Because now suddenly, there's more worlds that could be habitable. 
right eventually just space itself will be habitable um so what com what comes next uh yeah so we have uh JWST observations lined up um both uh, by our team and by other teams for like at least a couple like we are observing one such planet k218b and there are other uh, planets that are in the JWST cycle one program um so we'll see uh what lays in store um what would be i guess you know you've got time on james webb what would be an observation that you could make that would feel really impactful what would, what would, so in in our paper actually we demonstrated that uh, at least a couple of these biosignatures potential biosignatures we are suggesting can be detected with with already approved time on jwst so so if you make that detection that would be great but even without it if we make detections of water uh, ammonia, methane, HCN, and things like that, that would at least give us some constraints on the possible presence of an ocean, you know, and atmospheric conditions and so on. So, you know, regardless in the next few years, you know, assuming all goes to plan with JWST, we learn a lot about such worlds um, independent of their habitable potential. And that is the exciting part to yeah. begin with. Yeah, it's really interesting. And so now... All we need is James Webb to launch. Absolutely. That's going to happen any day now. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. Nico, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Uh, really exciting concept, discovery, and I think, you know, it really feels to me like this is going to have very big implications. Assuming the math holds, um, it's going to have very big implications for the search for, for life. It, it, you know, in reading it, it really felt like one of those influential papers that is going to have ripples down the road as we as we learn more and more about the universe so thank you so much for you know thanks for having me and i would like to especially thank the exoplanet community actually because yeah. you know we as a field have found thousands of planets and you know we wouldn't be here talking about this if not for missions like tess and kepler and various other uh, observation facilities that have discovered these worlds and uh, you know, and it's looking really promising uh, the decade ahead. So I thank all my exoplanet <laughs> friends and colleagues. Uh, and uh, yeah, and thank you for having yeah. me here for this if, great discussion. If uh, if people want to follow your work and see what you're up to, where should they go? What's the best place where people can see what you're up uh, to? So I, I post all uh, my papers uh, on, on my website. Uh, so you can just Google for me and you'll find me. Yeah. Um, that's the that's the go-to place terrific wonderful well again thank you so much for the interview and if you do uh once you had those observations uh please come back and tell me what you found will do all right thanks, thanks for having me great chatting bye-bye thanks bye, -bye. Thanks. bye.